Welcome back to Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm uh, Ricardo Salgado. I'm Garrett Strother. And I'm Seamus Connolly. And we are broadcasting live from Mushnik Skid Row Flowers. Shall we hop into some news, guys? We got a lot this week. Yeah, we got a lot to tackle. Let's jump in. It's crazy to me how much news we can have when absolutely nothing is going on. What do we have up first? It's some sad news, Seamus. Rock legend Eddie Van Halen sadly passed away. When rock legends like him pass from whatever it is they pass from, it, it's always heartbreaking because of the contribution they've made to like rock and roll, modern music. Yeah, we just wanted to touch on it and say, rest in peace. Thank you for your contribution. Another piece of news that we've been discussing, it seems like every single week since we got back from our hiatus, it is official that Regal Theatres whose parent company is Cineworld, is closing all of their theaters probably through the end of 2020. It's not clear right now when they'll reopen because there's no movies coming out until essentially December at this point. So I don't know what that means exactly for if AMC will follow suit because I know Regal, we had just mentioned a couple weeks ago, went to a weekend-only model before now closing completely indefinitely. It's not like there are a ton of releases happening right now anyway, and I think a lot of people's mentalities about rejoining a theater audience is very much determined by the effectiveness and timeliness of an actual vaccine. I still think a lot of people are just too cautious. Plus, most of the movies that they're running right now that aren't Tenet or New Mutants are classic films, which movie theaters don't really make money off of when they run them. Yeah, who knows? It's been the delay marathon with everything that we even talk about here, so we'll see how long it lasts. Well, there's one more release date delay. Surprise, surprise. Dune, which we just talked about the trailer for, is now scheduled to come out a full year from now, in October 2021. Makes a lot of sense to me. Studios are going to have to clear their slate of whatever movies were supposed to come out early next year to make room for all the movies that they're postponing now. We'll be seeing Dune when it comes out. It'll probably get delayed again, knowing how everything's going. On a lighter note, Disney Pixar's Soul is coming exclusively to Disney Plus streaming Christmas Day, December 25th. From everything they said, it's not going to be premium access, like Mulan, so... Oh, wow. If you've got your Disney Plus subscription, you're just going to be able to watch it, which is great news. I know that we said that we were hoping that that's how they were going to go, that Mulan wasn't going to do well. They've never released any official numbers about how many people paid for premium access, which says to me it was not a lot. I'm excited to not have to pay $30 to see Soul. Yeah, I'm pumped for that. I I saw the headline that it was moving to exclusively uh, streaming for its release, and I I guess I kind of just assumed that it was going to be premium access, but I'm glad to see a little bit of the failure in that department to rake in enough premium access buys, so I'm looking forward to Soul. We'll cover that for our December 27th show, our first show after Christmas. And then, like you said, Seamus, last week... I think we're going into the Spider-Verse for Spider-Man 3. Yeah. Marvel has confirmed that Doctor Strange will be making an appearance. And in addition to that, Vincent D'Onofrio is hinting on Twitter that at the very least he wants to be making an appearance as Kingpin. Yes, I saw that too. If this is how they're going to bring in the Netflix shows, maybe, there's probably no cleaner way to make any kind of transition like that. If they're going for broke and throwing in so many different universes, I think this is going to be a hell of a Marvel event. 
Spider-Verse opened the floodgates because now everyone's doing, like, the multiverse thing. Marvel doing this with Doctor Strange. I mean, they sprinkled in some hints earlier in the Tom Holland movies about the existence of a Miles Morales character out in the MCU somewhere. So I don't know, maybe they'll use this opportunity to start hinting at that too. I know that there was more of a nine-movie Spider-Man MCU plan where they were going to start integrating Miles with Peter Parker at some point and then transition completely over to just Miles as Spider-Man, but maybe this is where we're going to get some more concrete pieces of evidence for that. I'm also wondering if they're trying to expedite the Spider-Man process because who knows how the Sony renegotiation went. Maybe they only have him for a set number of movies. This Uh... might be their way of kind of both folding in the Sony stuff that they're contractually obligated to fold in, and also moving faster with their original plan for how Tom Holland's Peter Parker was going to evolve and bring in new characters. If Jamie Foxx is peeking his head around, and now D'Onofrio is maybe gracing us with his presence, we'll see. Speaking of mega-franchises incorporating characters from other companies... We also heard that the new Smash character is going to be Steve from Minecraft. Uh, weird angle, because this is the last round of DLC characters for the Battle Pass. I believe this is the finale content drop, which I feel like maybe makes the Minecraft angle even more lackluster. I know it's such a popular game, but if they're pulling from literally everywhere, they could have gone so many different directions. I was charmed. Watching the gameplay, the idea that you can get thrown in the air and build a block that will save you from falling, that is a great way to incorporate the idea of the Minecraft mechanic into that game. I think they have found really good ways to integrate the Minecraft world into the Smash setup. Man, I'm all for Minecraft Steve. You know, I watched the trailer. It looks goofy and fun. It's Super Smash Brothers, so it really doesn't matter since they're going to make an even bigger roster the next time around, including Steve from the start anyway, most likely. But being the finale of content seems like they could have gone out on such a bigger pow. Seamus, would you, would you got someone better than Steve? Give me Shell from Portal. Uh, there's your fun right there. That would be Portals? Fun. Come on, guys. What if you did it Ice Climber style and you had Shell and Freeman from oh, Half-Life? Oh, yes. One's got the melee damage with a crowbar. One of them's got the defensive portals going around. It'd be a lot of fun. Well, take it up with Nintendo because you'll never get it. In other video game news, we also got... The first look trailer at Call of Duty Cold War Zombies mode. They confirmed that they are bringing back the old perk system. So Juggernaug, Speed Cola, Double Tap, all those perk-a-colas are going to be back, not the weird statue system that they had in Black Ops 4. Right, right. They said it's going to be a much more streamlined timeline with a new story. That will be nice that you don't have to follow all of this convoluted zombies. Yeah, the lore, lore has gone like even crazy at this point. If you're like trying to add up all the different season passes, there's like magic and stuff, and like the devil is walking around, and there's dragons and time travel. What? <laughs> Yeah, man, it gets yeah, weird. It's, Ricardo, it's insane. Like you said, it's not even worth trying to, like, wrap your head around. I like that they're doing a clean slate. You know, zombies is, like, the best mode you have in a Call of Duty anyway, so... Now, they did tease that there's probably going to be some connections to the old universe. 
there's a young woman named Sam in the trailer who, even though they didn't say anything about that, that seems an awful lot like it's going to be a grown-up version of Samantha Maxis to me. Like the little girl with the teddy bear? Is that... You hear her giggle or whatever when things happen. Also, the launch map is going to be knocked Durantoten, which was the first World at War zombies map all the way One back of my favorites. I love that one. Except it's going to be an updated version of it that's bigger and has more map to explore. Dope. Perfect. Plus, all post-launch maps are going to be free. You're not going to have to shell out $15 every time they drop a new map. And this is stuff that I'm not super sold on. You're going to have, like, loadouts now that you can pre-populate, and as you gain your zombies zombies level you can start with more and more powerful guns they were playing around with that kind of system in like black ops 3 and world war 2 also they're doing score streaks where you can like call in an attack helicopter like you're oh, doing that's pretty weird i'll say that's new and strange but i mean i'll play it they confirmed it's going to be cross-platform oh so that'll be nice I never got into reason? call of duty so none of that made any sense to me <laughs> <laughs> oh this is just nonsense to you Coming up next, you've got all the trailers you can possibly imagine. <laughs> we have so many trailers today, you guys. First up, we've got the 355, which is a new spy espionage movie coming out January 15th with Jessica Chastain, Diane Kruger, Penelope Cruz, Lupita Nyong'o, and Bing Bing Fon. I've never heard of this movie until I watched the trailer today with you guys, and it looks cool. It started off with a little bumper of, like, from the people that brought you Jason Bourne, and that's very much the yeah, vibe I it, got from the entire trailer. Yeah, it really it, feels like it. It's lady team-up Jason Bourne is what it looks like. All mm -hmm. female international super spies have to team up and make this new intelligence team that, like, fights global threats. It looks fun. It looks like a dope action movie. Very cool set pieces coming around. I like everybody in the cast, and that's enough to sell me on a movie. Especially this kind of movie. Coming up next, we've got the Mank trailer, David Fincher's new film about the making of Citizen Kane. I think this trailer looks fine, and I think a lot of people were really dunking on it. Like, it's too inside baseball, or it's too focused on replicating the look of old Orson Welles movies. And I think those people are foolish <laughs> to bet against David Fincher. I remember when they announced The Social Network, everybody was like, who wants to see a Facebook movie? And that is one of the best movies of the last 10 years. I kind of agree with you on that point, actually. It was even a little inside baseball for me. I thought it visually looked very cool. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to replicate that iconic Orson Welles look. So I'm interested. I like Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman's a, a chameleon. He can just kill it in every role. It's a Netflix movie, which means we'll be able to watch it safely from our own homes when it comes out. If they have the Oscars this year, I think this would be probably a top contender because it's an Academy favorite director. It's about movies, which the Academy loves, and it's something that everybody will be able to see easily. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same Oscar buzz stuff when I was watching that trailer. Just like you said, the Academy loves movies about old Hollywood. And especially if it's about the making of what's considered like the best film ever made. As much as I hate to admit it, I have never seen Citizen Kane, but... It's coming out in November. We'll probably do Citizen Kane. It's gonna be great. Alright, next up, we've got a bunch of TV trailers. Coming next year to Amazon, based on the acclaimed Robert Kirkman, who wrote the Walking Dead graphic novels, Invincible. It's a new animated series. Yeah, J. Jonah Jameson has superpowers, and he's got a son. 
<laughs> is that what you took from this? Is that not what happened? That was very clearly J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> he had a son. He had powers. Robert Kirkman is writing for Marvel now. Ricardo, I know you haven't. Seamus, have you read any of the Invincible comics? I've never even heard of this character before. I honestly read them like when I was probably 13, when I read the first couple issues of the Invincible comic. I remember really liking it. This looks a little bit more violent than maybe the tone of the comic is, which I think is interesting. Like Ricardo mentioned before the podcast, Amazon's had a lot of success with the boys, so I think maybe they're trying to channel that a little yeah, bit. I'm pretty sure this is Seth Rogen, too, like who backs the boys. The comic, I feel like it was like famously like violent. It is Robert Kirkman, after all. Mm, that's true. What I read wasn't that violent so far. Again, it was a long time ago boys so but i remember it being kind of almost like sky high e in tone and content which you know i'm about that so we all love sky high here garrett i know exactly what you're talking about from the trailer it gave me very much superman vibes which i guarantee it's going for you know the young man learning to work with his powers I mean, obviously, it's very different in that the father figure of this character also has these superpowers. It's very different than... Uh, and he's J. Jonah Jameson. And he's J. Jonah Jameson, of course, the beautiful J.K. Simmons. Listen, being the son of an acclaimed journalist <laughs> oh, God. has its issues, guys. It's not all fun and games and late nights in the copy room. He's not teaching it's his boy to work. slam you- down for pictures of Spider-Man. You need to find pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> My old man, he only wanted one thing from me. It's for pictures of Spider-Man on his desk <laughs> every day. I'm excited for this. Ugh. It looks fun. I wasn't prepared to give education today, but I guess it's my job now. <laughs> uh, this is for Selena the series, which... These two have no frame of reference. I for. have some frame of reference. Excuse me, <laughs> Ricardo. I just never finished the movie. I know everything that's going to happen in the first six episodes and nothing else. I know literally <laughs> nothing. This is great for me. I am showing a huge blind spot in my cultural knowledge. It is not an understatement to say that Mexicans love Selena. <laughs> This is going to be a Netflix original stretched over uh, two parts. So it's going to be part one comes out this December. Unclear when part two is going to come out. But I'm willing to see what they do with it. It's backed by all like her family and stuff. Do you know if the original movie is also on Netflix right now? I don't know where that's streaming right now. I will answer that for you in one Thank you so second. much, Garrett. I want to watch that like tonight because I know that movie is fantastic. I will check it out so I can get Please. educated. Garrett, you're not seeing it. You don't know how it ends, right? I at least know, like, the history of the human being that the movie is about. It's almost better if Garrett just, like, experiences it from this retelling. Or maybe, you know, go watch the movie, Garrett, obviously, like you said, and it's crazy. You can watch it on Freeform. I I don't have Freeform? We also got our first look this week at the new Modoc stop-motion animated series coming to Hulu, starring Patton Oswalt as the titular supervillain. It looks like Robot it Chicken. It looks like Robot yeah, Chicken. Yeah, it's just Robot Chicken. With specific characters. I mean, it looks juvenile and funny. I don't know. I don't know if I'll watch this show. I'm here for my man Ben Schwartz. I'm more into it just because I didn't know this was going to be stop-motion going into it. That's kind of what's hooking me. I just like the way it looks. I like Ben Schwartz, I like Patton Oswalt, I like Melissa Fumero. This is definitely targeted not at children. Alright, in other superhero television show news, 
HBO Max is developing a new Green Lantern series with Seth Graham Smith and Mark Guggenheim. Seth Graham Smith, who of course wrote genuinely one of the most interesting books I've ever read, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Okay. That is a good (laughs) book, Seamus. So I'm excited about the concept of a new Green Lantern show. I'm glad that finally they're going to do something with Green Lantern after sitting on that IP for so long. R.I.P. Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, I heard it's going to like follow multiple Green oh, Lanterns. Oh, I love that concept because they really don't touch on that too much in like the main stuff. I'm very curious if it's going to be animated or live action. I kind of hope it's live action. I'd love to see HBO Max give us like a kind of answer to the Mandalorian in like an offshoot of a mega nerd franchise. I like that prospect, you know, especially with such an interesting and rarely used character as Green Lantern and like the Lantern Corps and all that. I think it would be totally cool to see it in live action. I want to see all the spectrum Shames, I want to see the Red Lanterns, the Blue Lanterns. Give me Larflees, the Orange yeah, Lantern. I, I'm all about it. I know nothing about the like other colors except for like yellow is bad, and there's like a whole weird <laughs> nuance to how that like weird color government works. In one last piece of news, also related to HBO Max, the Get Out the Vote West Wing reunion special is coming out. This week, October 15th, I'm a big West Wing fan, as I know I've mentioned on the show before, so I'm excited to see that. There was a trailer. It looked West Wingy and fun. Sterling K. Brown's going to be in it. It Have looks they, like a good time. I'm not even sure when that show ended. When, when, when was that again? It ended in 2006. You know, it started in 1999, but it's really solid. A lot of it is still upsettingly relevant, especially when they get to episodes where they discuss race it's on HBO Max. I think it's still on Netflix, even though they said it was leaving Netflix when HBO Max got okay, it. Okay, well, I'll, I'll check it out in one of the two. Should we jump into our main segment, fellas? Let's do it. Ricardo, this was your pick this week for our little Halloween extravaganza we're having this month. Yeah, it was. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. I adore this movie. Little Shop of Horrors, which... I guess if you want to get technical about it, isn't a horror movie per se, but I'm going to count it this time. Well, I mean, it's definitely a Halloween movie. It's a concept, if I'm not mistaken, it's a movie based on a Broadway show that's based on a black and white horror movie. It's based on a Roger Corman movie. You know, all the best black and white horror movies are Roger Corman movies, by which I mean, of course, they're not. (laughs) This is a real fact. That movie was shot in two days. The black and white one with a very young Jack Nicholson. I didn't know that. A black and white horror movie called Little Shop of Horrors got turned into a off-Broadway musical that then got turned into this camp masterpiece, which, up until I watched it for the podcast, I had never seen. No way! I was going to ask if you had a history with this, like me and Ricardo, because, I mean, Ricardo kind of touched on it, but this was, like, a childhood favorite. Like, I saw this young, and it always kind of shocks me how dark it gets. Me, like, laughing at Steve Martin, and I'm now realizing, like, oh my god. I knew, like, three things about this movie. I knew Feed Me Seymour, I knew that Steve Martin was a dentist, and I knew the story of, like, how it came to be with the Roger Corman movie than the Off-Broadway than this. Wow. So you, you got taken on a ride. This movie goes, like, all over the place. I was really surprised by how good it was. Like, not that I didn't expect to like it, but it's really, really solid. And frankly, both endings are really, really solid. And we'll get into that a little bit more in spoilers. 
But usually I feel like when there is a movie that has a quote-unquote director's cut and a theatrical cut, one of them is usually, like, definitively better. Because obviously there's a lot to appreciate in both of them. Also, if you've seen the stage play, if you know about the old movie, if you of course, have yeah. any knowledge of any of that. And actually me and Ricardo were kind of lucky that our, our high school did this musical. Every time I watch the movie now, I think about the stage show. Frank Oz can really just direct a movie, guys. Totally. He is just so good. Yeah, man. Fozzie Bear knocked it out of the park. Yeah, man. He, he's a delight. Frank Oz does not get the appreciation he deserves. He is a living legend. He is a hilarious comedian, an astounding puppeteer, contributed to many of the most iconic characters of all time. Yoda, the various Muppets he voices, plus he is a astounding director. Absolutely, man. I totally agree. And he makes a fun movie. Pure entertainment is what he brings to the table, and you can completely appreciate it. His puppeting knowledge comes in real big handy this time around, because without that giant, like, 50 people stuffed inside that big puppet trying to get it to work, this would not have the same impact. That puppet is so impressive. It's Especially when the bigger that plant gets, the more impressive that puppet gets. Oh my god, just the intricacies of the movement in the mouth and in the tentacles are mind-boggling when you consider the lack of CG used in every single frame. It's just so impressive, and it almost adds a level of intimidation to this thing. Like, you know it's a physical thing that's doing all these movements in reality. It's, it adds a little bit of a intimidation factor for me. This movie would not work with CG nearly as well. Absolutely it, You would not. not be intimidated by that plant at all. And I think also part of it is how good the performances are. Specifically Rick Moranis who is just a treasure in everything he's in. Also I was realizing as I watched this movie is Rick Moranis hot? Garrett, you are... You're asking the real questions here, Garrett. I think it's a good question because it's put to the test in this movie a little bit. Like, look, Rick Moranis the guy or the, the character he comes off as? <laughs> no, Rick screen? Moranis the guy. Well, I, mean, like, I don't okay. know, man. I saw the behind the scenes to this movie and I don't know. It, it was cool to see him just being like a regular dude and not being like the dopey cartoon man boy that I know him as. When he gets to kind of belt out the music a little more, I kind of see a little more of that confidence in Mr. Moranis. And third act maybe is where that starts to poke through a little bit now. Even during the Skid Row song at the very beginning, he really gets to sing and be present in a way that you don't see Rick Moranis get to be emotionally present very often. Oh man, I want to see a legacy sequel of what happens (laughs) 20 years later in a Logan-style, dirty, gritty reboot. I would watch that movie, Seamus. I know that was a joke, but, like, I would 100%. It's mostly a joke, but we would all watch that movie if it was real. (laughs) During Rick Moranis' comeback now. It's possible they're doing it for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I mean, it's not going to be, like, a dirty, gritty remake or anything. (laughs) (laughs) What? I think Rick Moranis does a really, really good job in this movie. He's really funny. It helps that this movie is already kind of a parody. But also, I understand completely why Audrey would like Seymour. And a lot of times when you have the down-on-his-luck loser character and the woman of his dreams who's secretly gaga for him, I do not see why. But I think they write him well as bumbling and down-on-his-luck, but not a doof. 
he has emotions and intelligence and passions. In the beginning, they kind of set it up like it is going to be just another weird, doofy Rick Moranis. He's, he breaks all the pots on the ground and stuff. It almost seems like they're going to go down that route, but like you said, he he has a little more depth to him than the average Rick Moranis comedy character. So we briefly touched on Steve Martin, who is absolutely brilliant oh my in God, this movie, yes. of course. I knew Bill Murray had a cameo. I did not know John Candy was in it, and I did not know Christopher Guest was going to be in it. What about James Belushi? You think you see him coming either? Okay, so I watched the director's cut ending that has Paul Dooley, and I was super pumped to see Paul Dooley. But then I looked up the movie on IMDb to check something else. It said Jim Belushi was in this movie, and I was like, Jim Belushi was not <laughs> in this movie. Don't you lie to me, and then, IMDb. And then, of course, I watched the theatrical cut where Paul Dooley's character is Jim Belushi instead. And both of them did a great job. Very different performances. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love both of them. A lot of this movie I remember being a lot... I don't know, less funny might not be the right word. I feel like I never remember it being as entertaining and funny as it does get in a lot of parts. One of the most brilliant jokes in the whole movie is at the very beginning when Chris Guest says he'll take twice as many roses. They all say twice as many, and then the two street guys looking in the window, you see one of them say twice as many, but you don't hear it because you're on the other side of the glass. And that is just such a brilliant little joke. Oh, yeah. I just love this movie. I put it on whenever I can. I got, like, the Blu-ray special edition that comes with a letter from Frank Oz in it. I'm glad you picked it, Ricardo, because it's a really good time. I laughed a lot. I was invested in the characters. It just worked on every level. The music slaps. It's got oh, it's the so hardest good. soundtrack. It's going to be in your head for weeks, and it's not a bad thing either. No, it's making an Ashman, which I did not know. What do they do again? What, what? Yeah, I want to say they both did the, the play, too. Yeah, that's what it said in the credits, is that they did the music for the musical, and they did the music for the movie, which has, I guess, new songs added, and some songs taken out. Seamus, they're like the Disney guys. Oh! They did Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast yes. and okay. everything else. I, I recognize the names, but I had to get my memory jogged. Yes, okay, I remember now. It's a classic for a reason, you know? I think that the music is just phenomenal. All the performances are so much fun. I love it. I love it dearly. I'll watch it again probably not that long from now. The title song is honestly pretty hard to beat. What a way to open a movie. Right off the bat, the tone is set perfectly. Oh my god. Yeah, we didn't really touch on the, the three... The muses? Yeah, the Greek chorus that they've got going through Yeah, movie, I love them too. You are killing it, man. Totally. I think part of what makes this movie so brilliant is that it is set in a over-the-top storybook world that allows the characters to be hilarious by just existing. I brought this up earlier. It feels a little bit Pee-wee's Playhouse, but there's just something wrong. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to put it, honestly. It's just, like, it's whimsical but unsettling in a lot of ways that are, like, built into the world of Skid Row, I guess, is where the entire movie takes place, so... Yeah, Part of that I comes from the whole thing being, like, a huge set. Yeah. I was reading they shot it at Shepperton, which is, or at least was in the 80s, the biggest soundstage in the world. That's where they shoot, like, James Bond oh, sheesh, and stuff, yeah. you know? So they went all out for this movie. Like, for what seems like a B-movie, they spent a lot of money making it right. Like, the studio, and we'll get into the studios, you know, meddling with the ending and spoilers... 
But the studio put a lot into this movie that I'm sure was a risk for them. A dark horror musical comedy and also the fact that the leading lady, the woman who plays Audrey, was... Yeah, she originated the role. Yeah, she's from the stage show, which is shocking to me that the studio wouldn't have pushed for a more established movie name. Well, I'm personally really glad they didn't. I think that she brings a lot to this film that would have been totally lost. Yeah, absolutely. Her name... I believe it's Ellen Green. That is exactly what Mm. it is, Ricardo. Ellen Green. And of course, we didn't even talk about Levi Stubbs being Audrey too. Oh my god. He's so good. It's so good. Should we jump into spoilers? I think that all we can say is it's firing on all cylinders. And it's hitting on all cylinders. And I'm really glad I got to watch it. Audrey's voice. (laughs) It's insane. It's insane. But it works in this movie? It's insane until I get into the groove of it, and then I'm like, oh, that's just how this woman speaks. The movie really helps by having it fit so well tonally. If it were in another movie, I think I wouldn't be able to get past it. But the fact that just this entire world is so odd, no matter what weird thing they throw in, it will kind of assimilate. That's fair. I'm realizing now that almost everybody talks like an insane person in that movie, except for like two people, including all of the random flower shop buying people. Yeah, Chris guests the first customer they get. He's a robot, right? (laughs) What is that strange and unusual plant in the window? Just like, what are you doing, dude? You're in New York. Speak like a human. It works. It works. Yeah, like when he goes to the John Candy's radio show, when he's like being interviewed later, it's all like anybody that's not a main character is a crazy sounding person. What a time John John Candy Candy is having. John Candy has a ball in that scene. If that character were in another movie, it would drive me insane. But he just fits that's so yeah garrett i agree with so much of what you're saying is like any other setting for any of these elements would be like detrimental to the film but it's just okay should we try to break down the two endings now i would love to do that Uh, i guess let's talk about the theatrical ending first right this is the ending that i mean i grew up with like i said i didn't know there was even an alternate ending until we saw the stage play in high school so like straight up only four years ago wait is that how you found out when that play ended yeah, man, because the stage play ends with the director's cut ending, and it is it's wild. Audrey 2 lures Audrey to the flower shop and begins to eat her. And in the theatrical cut, Seymour is able to save Audrey. We have the musical number, Big Green Mother from Outer Space. Great song. Which is in both versions. And then after Audrey 2 brings the flower shop down, Seymour is able to electrocute Audrey 2, blowing Audrey 2 up. Like the Death Star. Exactly like the Death Star. <laughs> it might be the same assets. It, just... it must be. They get to go somewhere that's green to the house from the musical number, but we get a little bit of a tease that maybe not everybody's getting off scot-free because there's an Audrey 2 growing in their garden. Which gives a wonderful little smile right at the end. Curls his lips up. Again, a credit to the puppeteering that that oh, yeah. shot works so well only because that puppet is so emotive. And then in the director's cut, Audrey succumbs to her wounds after Audrey 2 attacks her. And then Seymour is eaten by Audrey 2, allowing Audrey 2s to take over the entire world. 
And I mean, there's something to the theatrical ending. It's almost just the director's cut ending, but like a little time jump before it would be like global world domination. It's still like a super downer ending when you try to consider like what the plan was for this plant from the beginning. And that's why I'm pretty cool with the theatrical ending because there is still the hint of, oh no, they are not out of the woods yet. This isn't the nice, neat little package that Seymour and Audrey think it is right now. Because if they got off scot-free, then I would have a problem with it. I think that's why this theatrical ending works so well, is that you do get the little ping in your brain of like, oh, they got to somewhere that's green. They prevailed with specifically the one man-eating plant that they were dealing with. And you get to have that feeling of like, oh, these characters get little something out of everything and then you still do get the twinge of not everything is as it seems things are gonna you know quickly go back to a state of unrest and you don't have to feel like well they showed the original ending to like test audiences everyone was just like bummed out and angry (laughs) and say oh no we have to change the ending no one's gonna recommend this movie because it was such a gamble we put so much money into it we can't not have people see this movie (laughs) And I do think the theatrical ending actually does fit the tone of the rest of the movie better in that it is the nice storybook with something sinister underneath. That being said, I think from a just pure storytelling perspective, the director's cut makes a lot more sense and seems like the more logical conclusion to the story. It was also insanely expensive. You see all those plants like ripping apart cities and stuff? Mm-hmm. All that was, oh. like, lost for several years. Basically, this isn't a true director's cut, and we'll get into this a little bit in our pop culture reference, in that it was rescued by film archivists, the original ending that Ricardo was referring to, and put together, and only after it was restored and re-edited and everything to be the original ending, then Frank Oz put his stamp of approval on it. So Frank Oz did not oversee the new edit of this film because this is not the exact ending that they showed to those test audiences it's a version very similar to that ending i think the director's cut ending goes on three or four minutes too long there's it definitely awful... does but I, don't know. I enjoy seeing all the destruction and mayhem happening on screen it drags because i was sitting there like okay what's gonna happen here And the answer is nothing. Because all the characters I was invested in are dead at that point. So there was nothing keeping me going in that story. It does kind of just verge into the territory of like, you know, disaster movie, destruction shot porn type feeling where you don't really have any more stakes in this movie at that point. They are really just trying to emphasize the danger around everything that's happening in like the last couple minutes. And that being said, I'm really, really glad I got to see the director's cut version and i think it makes much more sense and i'm glad that people who really obviously care about this movie put in the ton of work it took to get that version out to people so that we can experience it i think whenever i come back to this movie i think it's always going to be the director's cut i watch maybe like once in a while i throw in the theatrical one but for the most part the director's cut is like the version for me i honestly think It's split pretty 50-50 for me. I think both have a lot of good aspects to them, and they both have issues as well. I could watch either when I revisit this movie, I think. There's always a soft spot in my heart, like I said, for the theatrical release ending. But, you know, honestly, I would consider mixing it up if I was going to rewatch it again, maybe alternating. Because, like you said, it, it was so lost to time, and it was so different than what we knew 
what we were going to get that it's just interesting. It's just a very interesting way to take that, especially, you know, if you have a past appreciation for the live show. It's it's interesting. There should be a feature on the Blu-ray that just gives you one at random. Yeah. They like should a have clue a Blu-ray. I was going to say yes. it's like clue. The small stuff with Audrey too, the twitching of the smaller vines and the, you know, spitting up glasses like that. It's always just so interesting and fun to see how they utilize these mechanics. It is a miracle that that thing works as well as it does. Like, it looks so lifelike and its m- movements are very fluid and like 50 people are operating that thing. It sells the whole movie. It Absolutely. really does sell the whole movie. They actually had to kind of slow down the mouth movements because they can't go that fast to keep up with the song. So it's actually sped up a little bit in post. Oh, so Rip Brandis had to, like, slow-mo act when he's in the same shot? Yeah, yeah, I guess he would have. Hilarious. (laughs) Where's that behind-the-scenes footage? Final thoughts on Little Shop of Horrors, guys? Highly recommended. It's Halloween time. Throw it on. It's a good musical, like, spooky time. Yeah, I agree. It's great for this season. Not, like, the darkest Halloween-themed movie you could put on, so if you're not trying to, like, really dig into the horror side of Halloween, this is a great middle ground, because it gets dark, it's spooky, it's a lot of fun. My only gripe with this film is that they cut Mr. Mushnick's musical number from the live performance <laughs> that is is about him trying to get Seymour to become his son. I miss it, but that's literally the only gripe I have. Release the Mushnick cut. The Mushnick cut. Tweet us. Hashtag release the Mushnick cut on Twitter at PCR underscore podcast. <laughs> like we're going to make a Mushnick cut or something. <laughs> All right. I think that about wraps us up for Little Shop of Horrors. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to check this one out, guys. Totally, Garrett. Glad you liked it. Seamus, Ricardo, where's Riley? Where's Riley? That is the question, isn't it, Garrett? That's always the question with you, huh? I'm going to say Riley is currently... Holding a dentist at gunpoint and watching him slowly die from gas inhalation, but not helping. I'm going to say he's specifically not helping. Well, (laughs) I don't know what he's doing where he is, but he's at, I'm quoting here, the best mall in the world, Woodfield Mall. Wow, Riley's on to something. Now it's time for our pop culture reference of the episode, where we're going to break down director's cuts. This is something that studios and home video releases like to slap on something to make it new and rebranded, but it doesn't always mean exactly what it sounds like it means. Now, sometimes there are true director's cuts, where a director has a version of the movie that they want to release and that the studio hadn't initially let them do. Later, that's released, and it's what's known as the director's cut. But a lot of the time, the director isn't involved in a quote-unquote director's cut at all, as is the case in our main entry today, Little Shop of Horrors, and also something like the Blade Runner director's cut. Actually, those are edits of the film that are done after the fact by people that work for the studio trying to replicate what they think is the director's original vision for that work, then releasing it under the banner of the director's cut. Now... In the case of Blade Runner, and I'm sure when we do Blade Runner, we'll have a whole breakdown of the different versions for our pop culture reference. It's going to be chaos, yes. Blade Runner does actually have a true director's cut where Ridley Scott went back and made the version of the movie that he wanted to make, but that is the final cut. 
Yeah, that's about as <laughs> simplified as we can get with Blade Runner on that, because there are four different cuts that... of that movie floating around, and most of those cuts are, like, disavowed by big fans. Blade Runner, of course, is, is more of a special circumstance, because that is, like, notorious for its number of cuts, but usually, a movie usually has a theatrical and a director's, sometimes an extended but the director's cut is usually what people, like Garrett was mentioning, they try to fluff up the film, rebrand it a little bit as something a little more of a new experience than what you would have seen in a, in a theater. Now, something like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, like, its director's cut is actually a director's cut. That was the version that Spielberg intended, right? Really, whenever you're looking at a director's cut, beware and do your research before just immediately buying into that that's actually what it is. Because oftentimes, if the movie does have a true director's cut, it's out under a different name. Specifically on the notion of Apocalypse Now, you especially have to be careful with films like that who have, you know, new edits that come out. There was the Apocalypse Now, I don't know if it was called the final cut, but it was re-released for a short run in the theaters just last year as what was supposed to be the definitive edit of that movie. You know, you have that with the original theatrical and the redux, and now you have a final. It's Movies can creep into those territories of redundancy a little bit, so you kind of have to do your research that the version you're watching is the is the right one. What about the Snyder Cut? I was waiting to bring up the Snyder Cut. <laughs> it's tricky about how far you could go to define a director's cut, because the Snyder Cut is technically the director's cut of Justice League, but when you're doing millions of dollars of additional reshoots in order to achieve your director's cut, is that really a director's cut at all? It's not a simple re-edit with maybe some pickups to go back to. It is, in a lot of ways, a completely new movie. You could technically call the Star Wars Special Editions director's cut. Oh, yeah, that's, that's true. that's George Lucas's, like, actual vision for what those movies are supposed to be. Now it's time to save the rec center. Yeah, we just meandered our way into the rec center. All right, Seamus, what do you got? This week, my rec center is going to be the Safdie Brothers 2017 Good Time, starring none other than Robert Pattinson. This was my first foray into the Safdie Brothers as filmmakers. Oh, I also want to mention that Benny Safdie, one of the pair, also co-stars with Robert Pattinson in this film. You know, it's the same people that did Uncut Gems. It's the similar tone of just two hours worth of stress. It's so tense from beginning to end about a pair of brother bank robbers, Robert Pattinson and Benny Safdie, basically have to rob a bank, keep this money safe, and keep away from the cops in this one night while trying to avoid a whole other slew of genuinely pretty disturbing obstacles that get in their way. And it's absolutely stunning. I didn't watch it for ages for probably no reason other than I didn't know how masterful it was, but the music is incredible, the performances are great. It's really a gut punch of a movie in a ton of different ways, and it's on Netflix. So if you have Netflix and you're looking for a fantastic movie that will stress you out, good time. What do you got, Ricardo? The cult classic Trick or Treat. If you're looking for a movie that I think just bleeds everything Halloween in direction and aesthetic, 
it's trick-or-treat. It's like a horror anthology movie, kind of like Creep Show, where it's got like a comic book style to all the, like the transitions and stuff. It's a shame it never got a theatrical release. This was a straight-to-DVD movie. I would love That's to see sad. this movie in a theater. It's, it's also one of my Halloween, top-tier Halloween picks. It's severely underrated, probably just because it didn't get the wider release that it most certainly deserved. I think Creepshow is definitely an apt comparison, and if people have seen Krampus, it's totally very similar to that, except it's a little bit darker. Alright, Garrett, what do you have for the rec center this week? Well, I'm going to recommend another Frank Oz-Steve Martin joint, because I'm feeling all a little shop of horrors If you have never seen Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, you are in for a treat. Seamus, your face denotes to me that you have not seen this movie. Have you ever wanted to see Steve Martin and Michael Caine try to out-con-man each other? Just for the last three seconds. Have I got a movie for you. <laughs> Ooh. Also starring Glenn Headley, the wonderful late Glenn Headley. It is an absolutely hilarious romp. Yo, that sounds great. That sounds hilarious. I mean, I love... Steve Martin, I love Michael Caine. I like a a con man character in a comedy movie regardless, usually, so that sounds like a blast. Frank Oz is a great director. He's a great director. It also has genuinely, I think, one of the best teaser trailers ever. Oh. I'm going to tweet it out from the Pop Culture Reference Twitter account, and I'll personally send it to both of you. Please do. So yeah, I think that about wraps us up for today's episode of Pop Culture Reference. Join us next week for more Halloween fun. If you want to reach the show, be sure to tweet us at PCR underscore podcast or email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Make sure to give us a like and subscribe to make sure you're kept up on all of our latest content. Until then, see you next week.